Good morning, I'm Andy Studebaker. <clears throat> Today we will be reading from Proverbs 1, verses 1 through 7, which can be found on page 527 of your Pew Bible. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me pray for us one more time. Jesus, thank you for these words from the Old Testament. Thanks that you are uh, the God of the entire scriptures, the God of the entire universe, triune, holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We um, are grateful that you speak to us in lots of ways, through lots of times, um, in ways that hit our hearts in different ways that form us and shape us. As we step now into this book, would you bless us? Would you help us? Would you nourish us? Would you correct us? Would you instruct us? Uh, There's so many places where we are stuck. Uh, we feel anxious. We're unsure. Uh, things around us are uncertain and unstable. Um, and here you promise um, to call out and answer and give us what we need and to speak to us. Uh, and the scriptures tell us, Jesus, you came and you were the word. And you, you spoke to us most clearly. You came and actually dwelt among us. Uh, so living God would you use this word that can feel ancient, it can feel um, from a generations gone by, but it's relevant to where we are because you are relevant to where we are, so, so would you speak to us? Uh, open up hearts, heal us, help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, this might be the most awkward announcement I've ever made in my entire life. It's possible that our friends down the hall come and join us in a moment. Uh, maybe the sound's not working, maybe it is working. Uh, they don't know yet because they've been live so far. So if you see folks walk in with like uh, powdered sugar on their faces from all the pastries, if you would just kind of squeeze in, it'll be like obvious when it happens. Don't do anything yet. But if there's like 40 people that come in at the end, we'll just, they can sit in the front. That'll be fun. Uh, with their plates of pastries and danishes, they can all sit in the front. Uh, it's fun to experiment with things as a church and then to realize, oh, we are pretty low tech at the end of the day. Um, that catches up to us. All right. Hey, Proverbs chapter 1. The book of Proverbs is structured in kind of two parts. We're going to take seven weeks through this book. Uh, the first part of it is an introduction. Uh, it's chapters 1 through 9. And then you have 10 to 31 are more like what you're familiar with with Proverbs. It's this collection of parallel sayings of, of if you do this, good things happen. But if you don't do this, then bad things happen. And here's what wisdom looks like, but wickedness looks like this. Those commands come in the second half of the book. And so what I want to do this morning was just kind of frame the book for us, uh, help us kind of engage the idea of how it's laid out so that we can lean into the book of Proverbs. Because as I prayed for you this week, it just occurred to me that you're like me and none of us really enjoy being told what to do. 
I say that knowing there are like some rule followers and you actually love that, but, but even in that space, it's when it serves you or when it's to your advantage. Rarely do we like to be corrected. They are coming. Oh, they are coming. Hey, welcome our friends in. Can you squeeze in a little bit? Uh, Adrian's giving me the... So if you would squeeze in the aisles, this is so fun. I think we'll still do the sermon. We're going to do it. Um, all right, squeeze in a little bit. So I want to apologize to our children's ministry. Uh, I should just keep talking? I should wait till they get in here? Delane, what would you do? Would you just... You would wait. We're going to wait. Delane says we should wait, so we're just going to wait for a moment. Um, welcome, Quadrant One. Uh, or at least the three of you from Quadrant One. Come on in, come on in, come on in. All right. Talk amongst yourselves for a second. Make fun of the staff for a moment. Talk about how we got over our skis and we tried to be big and we didn't, didn't pull it off, all those things. Um, okay. I think there's more than three coming, but I could be wrong. Okay. I appreciate you guys being pace setters, though. Pioneers, Lewis and Clark coming on. All right. Here we go. Welcome. I'm just, I think it'll be less awkward. I f- I'll feel less awkward if I could just talk. I'm, gonna start, I'm just going to go, okay, thank you. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start going a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's not like this every Sunday if you're visiting, but it's something like this happens most Sundays. So, so it's okay. All right, Proverbs. None of us like to be told what to do. Uh, and here's the deal. Um, we at the same time resist instruction and being told what to do. Um, and we desperately need instruction. So we find ourselves in a jam. We were anti-authoritarian by nature all the way back in the garden from our very first parents. They resisted the idea of being told what to do. And when there was an allure of something that promised them more than what they had that raised suspicion about who God was, our first parents took that. And they ever since have been living with this baseline suspicion of God, but that translates to all authority. And then we've, we've been hurt. There's been bad information. We, we walked through seasons these last couple of years where it was impossible to know what was actually true. And so we come honestly to a text like this that's full of commands, just want to own the idea that we struggle with being told what to do. And we need help. There are so many places where we didn't hear what we needed. We weren't given a really stable identity. We weren't told who we were and what it meant to live in the world. And so what we're seeing is the effects of millennium for sure, but but even in recent days, generations of people not knowing who they are, not knowing what it looks like to live in the world, not knowing the wisdom of God that would actually translate to their health and their flourishing, what the Bible calls shalom. So in a lot of ways, uh, we need to be reparented. And that's not a knock on any of our parents. They did the best they could. They inherited from their parents and their parents' parents and their parents' parents' parents. It goes all the way back to the garden, right? So we're not throwing one generation under the bus by saying that. We're simply saying we need help from the outside, and yet we resist help. So these next couple of weeks, I want to encourage you, when you feel confronted, when you hear something in this book, then you just go, no way. Not me, not now. That's ancient When you find resistance to what's being told, acknowledge you don't like to be told what to do, but you also need to be told, and lean in and ask for God to make it clear for you. I want to invite you to take a humble and yet a hopeful posture in this season. We're not leaving the gospel behind. The gospel is the good news of God's love for us apart from what we do. And the message of the Bible is that we could never do enough good stuff 
to make ourselves right with God. That's in the Old Testament as well. That idea that we needed a sacrifice. We couldn't make ourselves clean. We were on the outside. We needed someone to come in our place and actually shed their blood and give their life so we could be made right with God. That's the story of the Old Testament. And Jesus comes in and fulfills that. The good news of Christianity, the, the gospel of Christianity is that God loves us despite what we do. But he loves us enough to tell us what to do that would lead to flourishing, that would make us whole, that would, that would have integration. You long to be integrated as a human, to have the, the desires and the practice match. You have that experience all the time where you know something is not healthy, it's not going to be good, it's not going to lead to flourishing, it's going to hurt you or those around you, even if it's not immediate, just a matter of time till it hits, and you do it anyway. You just stop and you go, why is that? What's going on in my heart? Why am I so rebellious even to myself? Why am I living in such a way that I'll even hurt myself? It's a vacuum. It's just me. But now I'm dealing with shame and regret and frustration. And there's a lie that you should just throw off all shame, that you should just free yourself from all constraints. There should be no rules and everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. But the Bible shows us how that ends. It ends with us harming each other, vandalizing each other, because we actually can't be a law unto ourselves, and it unravels at the seams if we were to go down that road. So far from throwing off constraint, what Proverb invites us into is to ask, how did the designer of this whole universe design things? And if we could just take a humble posture for a moment, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be omnicompetent. You don't have to be omniscient. You don't have to be omnipotent. You don't have to be everywhere, know everything. I know social media screams at you. You should be up to date on everything that's happening. You should understand global warming and the war in Ukraine and poverty. And you should understand what's going on with like different multi-level marketing. And you should have an idea about sports teams. And you should know about politics. And you should know about your neighborhood. And you should know about organic farming. And you should know about everything. And you go like, dang, I can't know about everything. And the scriptures say, that's right, you can't. So listen to the one who designed. This is my sales pitch for your discomfort that I anticipate you're going to feel. At least I hope you do because that will lead to growth. That will be a place where you can humbly acknowledge, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Or, or I knew that and I didn't know how to not live the opposite way and now God is actually speaking to me. So the Proverbs are a gift to us even as much as they will confront us. And it comes in two parts. So look with me in chapter 1, verse 1. So this is the Proverbs of Solomon, who's the son of David, the king of Israel. And then drop down to verse 8. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. This idea of being reparented, I'm getting from this passage. Here is Solomon, who the scriptures say was the wisest one to ever live. And yet he's a cautionary tale because he had all the wisdom and he blows his life up. Because the Bible is so clear, it's not about what we know, it's about the desires inside of our hearts. And Proverbs will warn us multiple times, hey, guard your heart, because from it flows everything else. What we see in Solomon's life is that he didn't guard his heart. He had all the knowledge, God had given him graciously, the wisdom enough to even write these things down, and even to collect sayings of other surrounding countries and nations and wise people so there's other people named in the book of proverbs so solomon's kind of responsible or kind of he's the editor he's the one who gathered these sayings together under the inspiration of the scripture so he's the author he wants to organize the book as a dad and as a mom talking to his kids hey let me tell you what it's supposed to be like let me tell you how to live in this world and i just want to insert in this moment 
our need for grace, Solomon's need for grace, and the warning that we are not talking over the next seven weeks of what you can learn and do and know that would make you right with God. The Bible is so clear. There's nothing we could learn or knew or, or do that would make us right with God. It's only what Christ has done on our behalf. And the only thing we can do is trust what he's already done. So Solomon, as the author, just right away should catch your attention. If you're familiar with the scriptures, this guy has a sexual problem. He has a money problem. He has a power problem. He has all kinds of family problems. He knew the stuff, and yet in his heart he said no, which again is that invitation to us. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Solomon didn't like to be told what to do. He knew what to do, and he said no. Where are there places where we might be saying no? So a mother and a father speaking, which just gives me a moment to kind of talk about the need for spiritual moms and dads, even in the church, to walk with us, to help us. I love that we're an intergenerational church and we have wisdom from folks who've suffered, who've walked with Jesus for a long time, who've been through lots of different seasons of life. I know if you're under 40 years old, the reason why you're here is not because of the preaching or because of our tech savviness, right? That's not the reason why. It's because you see gray hair in the room. And just having gray hair doesn't automatically make you wise. Those with gray hair know that. But it is a space where you say, oh, I would long to be reparented. I would long to learn about somebody who's ahead of me. I was in a meeting on Friday. There was about 14 of us. And we we're talking about what's going well at the church and where we see challenges, which is a kind way of saying where are our weaknesses and opportunities there. And we went around the table. And it just so happened to my right, there were three of our matriarchs in a row. And I won't give you their ages, but... Uh, it's impressive how long they've walked with God and, and their lives and their character. And to a woman, they all three said, our biggest need is to be outward focused. To not just like pat our own nest. To not just be excited about what God's doing in this space, but think about those who don't yet know God. And I was so blown away to hear these women in their, we'll just say 60 to 80. It's somewhere in that range. To hear these three matriarchs lead the room and say, hey, don't forget there are people outside these walls who need to know about Jesus. Our, the voice of a spiritual mom is a powerful voice. We, we need dads too, of course, but, but we should function together. And the way Proverbs is designed is as a parent speaking to their children. So it's like a typical dad speech, though. So there's actually 10 speeches in the book of Proverbs, chapters 1 to 9, and they meander a little bit. There's some overlap. Dads, you've been there? Where you're like, I'm going to say this to you again, either because I forgot I already told you, or I'm not sure that you understood because the way you're living reflects that you didn't actually track with what I'm saying. And kids are going like, hey, you've told me this like a hundred times. I, my kids can give me certain speeches that I have given them. They can like close their eyes and they can recite it back. Right. So in some ways, there's a lot of repetition in chapters one to nine, which is good. That means I don't have to go through every single verse of these nine chapters. So typical dad fashion. What happens here is a series of speeches, and I want to just lay those out for you. I want to give you kind of the high points of those, because what's going to happen is helping us kind of understand the rest of the book. What's summarized in the first nine chapters is explicitly laid out in the next, uh, next few chapters. So look with me in verse 2 of chapter 1. Solomon writes this as a spiritual dad. He says, listen to your spiritual moms as well. And this is the reason why, to know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in their learning. If they're already wise, let them grow 
in their learning. And the one who understands, may they obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So he gives us the purpose statement of the book. And would you just notice those words for a moment? I think it's a a helpful summary or at least instructive to us about how to think about wisdom. Proverbs is not a series of magic eight balls or fortune cookies. You just pull one out and kind of see what the axiom is and do that. It's a a network. It's a web. It's It's a tapestry of sorts woven together. Right? There's wisdom and instruction. There's righteousness and justice and equity and prudence and knowledge. There's learning, there's guidance, there's all these different things that come together biblically to give us a fabric or a tapestry of wisdom. The first thing I want you to understand about Proverbs is it's not a decoder ring to a successful life where you face an issue and you just find a verse and quote that and then do it. If it was that way, I think it would actually really diminish you. I think it would make light of the complexities of your situations. Actually, to honor the idea that these things are often woven together gives a sense of your reality where where things are just more complicated than you realized. Even what feels like a binary question, I don't want to trigger anybody, but like masks or no masks, that's like an A and B. But dude, that is not a simple question, right? There's so many, even if you think that's simple, how you treat people, how you respond to those who are different, how you, how you think about all the things that are competing data. Nothing actually is as simple as turn to that page, quote that verse, and you're done. It's not an eight ball. It's not fortune cookies. It's this web. And I think just looking at those words helps us see. Because what the Proverbs are going to hold up for us is an integrated view of life where, where justice is connected to generosity. And and you can't be a just, righteous person without being a generous person. And sexual integrity is connected to kindness. You can't be a kind person and lack sexual integrity. And when it comes to how you think about wisdom in relationships, you can't have a sharp tongue and still be wise. You can't insult people and still be loving, right? So what we see is a a network or a fabric. And so I thought about just the illustration of, of a tapestry. Not because I understand a lot about tapestries, but I know how to fall into a YouTube rabbit hole. I learned a ton this week about tapestries. So actually, I pulled one off the interwebs, legally, illegally, I'm not sure, who knows. Um, this is uh, from the 16th century. It's actually tied to the Last Supper, which is where we were last week. There's a little bit of reason for that. This is actually a tapestry. It's, it's a fabric that's woven. So I don't know what you know about uh, tapestry. Let me share with you uh, what I learned this week. So the next slide that kind of has a loom for us. And so what you see is those vertical lines, those white lines are, are what are called the wharf, right? The, 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 the guides line. And then, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Warp. And then the width is the sideways lines. Yeah? Warp and width. You've heard that. You didn't know what it was, but that's what it is. Katie, am I wrong? Katie's shaking her head. Uh, so I think that's right. I think it's warp, warps, warps, and then whiffs. Yes, there's guidelines this way. The wheels are falling off. Wise. Okay, here's the illustration I'm trying to say. You have these lines that guide us, and then that's chapters 1 to 9. Chapters 10 to 21 are the multicolored threads that run this direction that actually create the pattern. Here's why I want to give you that illustration. Not because it makes me look ridiculous, but because I think it will be helpful for you to learn there are thousands of colors and shades of string and fabric that get woven into a tapestry like the one we saw at the beginning. The next slide is actually a zoomed in picture of that. This is one little corner 
What's behind this dude, who looks a little creepy, admittedly, uh, is a marble pillar. The artist tried to like give detail of a marble stone pillar in this fabric. It just blew my mind. And if you were to look really closely, what you'll see is lots of shades of the same kind of color. So imagine like primary colors now for a moment. We've got six weeks from here. We're going to do six kind of topics through the book of Proverbs. Not all of them, but they're kind of the primary colors. So remember back to elementary school, you have your red, uh, your blue, and your yellow. And if you blur some of those, you get a purple, you get an orange, and you get a green. Six of those. We'll just use that for an example there. If you think about those primary colors, but it's not like there's just one saying about money. If money's green, there are hundreds of shades of green, right? If work is blue, there's a ton of shades of, of blue. If relationships is red, there's a ton of different shades of red. What I want to do in the next couple of weeks is invite you to engage both the, the runners, these guidelines of some big ideas, and then think through the details that the scriptures give you to give you kind of a framework or a patchwork to follow when it comes to the rest of your life. There will be dozens, if not hundreds, of, of sayings or statements about stuff that you're dealing with right now. And to use a tapestry illustration rather than a, a fortune cookie or an eight ball illustration is to say, hey, it's beautiful. What God's word has for you is actually beautiful. There's a design to it, even if sometimes it's hard to fully understand it. It's not simplistic in the sense that it's a magic eight ball. And they actually are designed and meant to blend together. Proverbs gives us a sense of the way things are supposed to be. They're the way things normally function. So if you're lazy, you normally struggle. If you're diligent, you normally do okay. And then as I say that, you're like, wait a second. All right, now that's why I don't believe the Bible because I feel like I've worked my tail off and my life is chaotic. Or I've got a friend who is, is lazy to the nines and he actually is doing great. Why, why are the wicked prospering and the righteous are suffering? Chris, you said this is a trustworthy instruction. Sometimes actually things don't go the way they're designed to go. Think about just your body for a moment, right? You are designed beautifully, fearfully, exactly the way God wanted you. And there's so many intricate things about the, the ways your cells regenerate and, and the way actually things work together. It's beautiful. And then sometimes there's cancer. Sometimes there's disease. Sometimes there's things don't function the way they're supposed to because we live in a fallen and broken world. Sometimes you, you break something. So we have oncologists and orthopedists alongside of internal medicine doctors because things don't always go the way they're supposed to. In the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Proverbs is not the only book. There's actually five of them. Psalms and Song of Solomon. And then you have Job and Ecclesiastes. These five books create their own kind of framework and patchwork. I just want to give you some hope. God is wise and understands we live in a fallen and broken world. He's giving us Proverbs to decide to us, here is the, the basic structure of the universe. Here's the ways I've designed things to work. Here, here's the, the grain of the universe. And if you will go with the grain of the universe, more times than not, it will lead to your flourishing. And then Job shows us what happens when we suffer? What happens when there's unexpected tragedy? Well, what happens when there's brokenness in the world that we live in? And so you have a whole other book that comes alongside of Proverbs so that Proverbs isn't Pollyannish or it's not naive or it's not disconnected from reality. You have a whole other book that talks about what do you do when it just the bottom falls out and you cave in on itself and you actually find yourself in desperate situations. Job speaks to that. And Ecclesiastes speaks to the cynical. 
If Job is the sufferer, then Ecclesiastes is the cynical one. Solomon gets credit for that book as well, and throughout history it's not explicitly named, but most think he's the guy there in that space. He would be the typical trust fund kid times 10. Had all the resources, tried everything, found it all wanting and lacking. And so Ecclesiastes gives us the voice of the cynic. How do you acknowledge that things sometimes are just jacked up and they're not the way they're supposed to be? And you've tried and you've experimented, you've gone outside the bounds and it fell apart. What do you do in that space? And so, so we have Proverbs kind of at the center and then we have Job and Ecclesiastes in this wisdom literature that we have. But what's fascinating is they, they hold together what is the, the next verse in chapter 1 of verse 7. At the center of this design, at the center of the tapestry, is the fear of the Lord. Ecclesiastes actually ends that way. Or I've done all this, I've, I've used everything, I slept everything, I bought everything, I experienced everything. At the end of all of this cynical exploration of pleasure, here's what I come down to. Fear God and obey His commands. That's it. So that's where Ecclesiastes lands. It's where Proverbs 7, 1, 1 verse 7 starts. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. We're going to see multiple times, May 14, 15 different times, this exhortation about the fear of the Lord in, in the book of Proverbs. But he starts by saying, hey, you can't actually be wise if you don't have a fear of the Lord. And I'm sure if you've been in the scriptures before or been in church for a while, you've heard someone try to explain what the fear of the Lord is about. It's actually a beautiful concept. And I fear sometimes that we're so quick to remind people of God's love and his mercy and his grace that we come up short of telling them about his holiness and his goodness and his justice. Because his love and grace only make sense in light of his goodness and his justice and his holiness. And so the fear of the Lord is a complex and yet simple idea. It has in it this idea of respect for sure, that you would look at God as the one who created everything, who sustains everything, who made you, who designed the universe. You would look at him that way and you would respect that. You would honor that. You would revere that. You would worship that. But it also has an element of like real fear. This one who made you, who sustains your breath, could stop your heart. He made you. He owns you. He will judge you. And so you stand in a space of, of reverence and respect for sure, but this is a holy God we're dealing with. Because think about the way when you're faced with a decision about what you know will harm you or somebody else, but you still want to do it, there's like a respect for others that might hold you back, but there's also a fear involved that would hold you back. And I would guess to the degree that you don't have respect or don't have fear, you're not worried about getting caught, you're not worried about the consequences, maybe you're young and you think, yeah, this will cost me down the road, like future Chris is going to have to deal with this, but today Chris gets to have the pleasure of this moment. If that's the way you operate, it's a lack of fear that would have both an understanding of the way God designed things and who is the one who actually designed it. Proverbs pushes in front of us early on, we're not just trafficking in good ideas, we're dealing with a holy God. And we won't be wise because we won't be compelled to listen to him if we don't understand who he actually is. So the fear of the Lord is the starting place. It's the headwaters of wisdom and knowledge. To start by saying, you're the one who designed this whole thing. And so there's like a respect and a worship and an awe that's due you. And you will end this whole thing. 
You will judge those who live outside this, those who take advantage of people, those who live lives that are not integrated, those who actually seek to serve themselves at the expense of others. You will judge those people. And where there's socially acceptable versions of that in my life, I will face that judgment. That's how this engages. So you think about that in the moment where you say, oh my gosh, this is a holy God. It's not just maybe even my parents who I'm frustrated with, who's imperfect, who maybe didn't earn the respect they were supposed to have. And so I, I've dismissed their voice or I've dismissed their worldview or, or their tradition. This is actually a holy God. And the fear of the Lord is, is even more complex. There's, there's passages that, man, I, we'll come back to them. I think for the sake of time, let me not read them. But would you just like Google fear of the Lord in Proverbs? You'll see about 15 expressions of that. And what you'll see is it's both... Um, an acknowledgement and worship of God, and then the, the photo negative is given. Those who don't fear the Lord are rebellious. Those who don't fear the Lord are wicked. Those who don't fear the Lord pursue evil. So there's this holiness part to it. There's this worship, adoration, trust, beauty, seeing the design and saying, that is amazing. I want that. That's part of the fear of the Lord. It leads to flourishing, it says. So there's a, a moving towards beauty and grace. And then there is this broken space when I don't fear the Lord and I, I, I become my own God or I look to somebody else to rescue and save me, the way that evil kind of plays itself out in that spot. Okay, now you should be in your mind going, okay, tracking with you, but doesn't the Scripture say in the New Testament that perfect love drives out fear? I mean, aren't we supposed to like not actually be afraid of God? And here's where the beauty actually, not the dismissing of what I just said, but what actually now makes sense and is integrated into your life because of course you should love God. Of course you shouldn't tremble in fear of Him and cower because Jesus took our judgment that we justly deserve. It's in 1 John 4 that says that perfect love drives out fear. And Romans tells us that God demonstrates that perfect love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the way that we can relate to this holy God without being smitten without being struck dead, which he does in the New Testament, by the way. You don't mess with God or play with God. Even though he loves us, he can take us out. He disciplines like a loving father. And there are story after story after story where God will not be trifled with. And so, friends, we have to come to terms with the fact that the gospel of grace and good news of God's love is no free pass to our own licentiousness. And that just makes sense. Like, that's a good thing for you. That's a, that's a good way to run the universe, that, that there would be justice, there would be a reckoning, there would be judgment for things that don't, don't happen the way they're supposed to or that, that actually assault and harm and commodify people. That's really, really good news. The problem you have is when you're the one who has harmed people because you feel entitled to it. You feel like you had it coming. You feel like you deserve it. It's, it's just a form of comfort after all. It's just something that, that you deserve because of what happened to you. You're just living out a narrative or whatever it is that you use to explain. You're deifying yourself so you think you can do your own thing in that space to hear, no, 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 God is the judge. Christ has taken your judgment, but he's still your judge. You'll stand before him and give an account for your life. You won't deal with the punishment the same way because Christ has borne the weight of that sin. But it would be ridiculous if you were in an intimate relationship and you said, because this person loves me, now I can live any way I want. I mean, that would prove that you're not in an intimate relationship. It would prove that you're in some weird codependent relationship that's abusive. So when you say, I love this person and I do whatever I want, you're proving that you don't actually love them. 
Same way with the scriptures. When we say we love God, Jesus says, why do you say you love me and you don't do what I command? It's not an intimate relationship because intimacy actually has a behavior to it. It has a a movement towards holiness because that actually leads to flourishing. So this is the way it sounds in Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 1 Peter chapter 1 says that we should live in fear, and that fear actually produces holiness. And he names that God dies in our place in that passage, but it has this movement towards holiness because out of respect and the way God designed things and who he is and who we are, we get a chance to respond to God. In love, receiving his love, but being transformed by that love. I just want to labor to have you not dismiss the idea that the fear of the Lord actually means the fear of the Lord. If you've heard a definition of that that makes you not fear the Lord, then you've not heard a good definition of that. He loves you, he's for you, and he is a consuming fire. He's holy and he sees everything. The good news of the gospel is everything he sees, he died for on the cross to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free. But it would be, again, ridiculous and disintegrated and against the grain of the universe than to live in such a way that you actually no longer followed what he said. Okay, so fear of the Lord is one of those strings going up. Needing to be reparented is one of those strings going up. The idea that it's not just simple ideas but a fabric woven together is actually one of those very strings. And what you see in the remaining chapters of the introduction is two choices set before you. The voice of wisdom and the voice of folly. It's personified sometimes as two women. This faithful, wise woman and this adulterous, temptress of a woman. And as you kind of get inside that for a moment to think about the way flattery, the way, the way promising pleasure but only delivering actually pain. The way, the way it looks where, where sin strokes us and says beautiful things about us and then actually devours us. These are the narratives of the next couple of chapters in the book of Proverbs. You have these two choices. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But if you don't fear him, you're going to live the way of folly. Those who don't fear the Lord go, go this direction. And that direction looks like all kinds of pain and exploitation. And getting in situations where you use people for your own gain in ways that dehumanize them and leave you empty, leave you bankrupt, leave you diminished and depleted. It'll call out to you, folly does. And it says you're special and you're beautiful and I've been waiting for you. And there's an arousal kind of engagement with it. And then it says it ends in death. And in contrast, here is Lady Wisdom calling out, offering us life and flourishing and integration and shalom, this this life that actually has a peace about it. And it stands, actually, we see in chapter 9 of Proverbs, at the highest point of the city, which is where the temple would be. Wisdom stands in the temple, the voice of God saying to you, come, let me give you wisdom. Let me tell you how the universe is designed to work. Let me tell you the grain of the universe the way it's supposed to function, so you can live in light of that. And a few verses later it says, here is this adulterous woman of folly. She's also at the high point of the city. As a false god, promising that if you worship her, 
you'll have everything you ever wanted. And it says at the very end of chapter 9, but at her table, her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Here's this voice calling out from two high points, saying here's two ways to live. You only have two options. There's not a, a third way. Jesus says there's just two roads, a broad path and a narrow road. You don't get a third way of like, I'm not going to listen to that or that I'm going to do my own thing. To do your own thing is to be in the way of folly. It's to listen to that voice, that flattering voice that actually says you're something special and therefore should be paid or should benefit somehow. But what the scriptures are saying to us over and over again is pulling the veil off of folly, off of the seduction of a self-focused wisdom, holding up instead what is the beautiful way the universe is designed to work and inviting you to make a choice. Proverbs is going to lay out for us the fabric of the universe and say, live this way. And here's the great news. In that fabric, God has woven in redemption. Even in Proverbs, we'll see this idea of like sacrifice on behalf of somebody else to redeem them. God has woven in redemption in the fabric of the universe. And that just makes sense because it's what he loves. It's who he is. It's what we needed. And he actually gives us what we most need so that we can be rescued and saved. So every week as we study the book of Proverbs, it's not going to be like a hard turn from law and obedience and doing and being afraid. Okay, never mind. Trust Jesus instead. That's going to be integrated. It's going to be, hey, here's the way of holiness. Here's the way of life. When it comes to your work, when it comes to your money, when it comes to your sex life, when it comes to your relationships, when it comes to justice and mercy, when it comes to how you talk to people, those six themes will lay out for you the way of folly and the way of wisdom. And then at the center of that crossroads is Jesus calling to you, showing that the one who says this is the way of wisdom is willing to die in your place rather than lead you to death. Folly leads to your own death. Wisdom takes your death upon himself in a way that actually makes it possible for you to be forgiven and set free. So you can move towards the commands of God, not overwhelmed with anxiety, but earnestly engaging the God of the universe, asking him to shape and transform you because of what he's done. Because he died to set you free. He died to actually free you from the seduction of the voice of folly that you've heard your whole life and has been woven into your story. We're not all of one or the other. We have multiple things coming together inside of our hearts. As those get exposed, let's apply the grace of Jesus for forgiveness, but also for transformation. So we take communion every week to remind us of what Christ has done to make obedience to God possible, to remove our wrath and to change our hearts. That nourishes us and it refocuses and recenters us, which is what the first chapters of Proverbs are aimed to do as well. So in a moment, I want to invite Christians to come and take communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm really thankful you're in the room. What I've been talking about is a practical understanding of who God is. It's real to life. It's not just ideas. It's not things on flannel graphs. It's not things that are part of traditions. It's, it's part of the way the world and the universe actually functions and works. And at the epicenter of that, in God's design, is that he knew you couldn't save yourself, so he died in your place, took the punishment of all your sin upon himself, to set you free, and all he asks is that you trust him. That trust will change your life. That trust will transform you. That trust will, will change your loves and affections. But he says, just trust me. Come listen to my voice and come and follow. That's the invitation of Jesus to you this morning. If you're ready to accept him, I would invite you to come and take communion. If you're not ready to trust Christ, stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that will give you some examples of what it would sound like to ask God for help and 
cry out for wisdom and even wrestle with your honest doubts of, is he real, is he true? So if you're not following Jesus, stay in your seat and pray. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and take communion. There'll be servers here at the ends of all the aisles and there'll be gluten-free station here in the middle. Let me pray for us and then we will take communion and sing. Jesus, we come to you now and we ask for your help. Talking fast, saying lots of things with lots of glitches in the morning. Would you now in this moment settle our hearts, set our gaze upon you? There are so many voices. There's a cacophony of voices around us. Would you speak clearly to us through your broken body and shed blood in ways that both save us and sustain us? Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, come when you're ready.